You'll see the sermon outline on page five of the booklet has this introduction and you may not be familiar with this term but I just want to sort of say from the beginning, from the outset, straight out the gate, postmodernism, it doesn't matter when truth gets personal. Now you might not be familiar with that term postmodernism, after modernism, after that. It was really fashionable from probably about the late 90s, early 2000s. Lots of books are written on both sides, um, Christian and not Christian, about postmodernism and its new reign in our society. You know, modernism was the kind of the Gen X thing, it's the thing that I grew up with, kind of this is a fact, that's not a fact, truth, not truth. And then us Gen Xs found us moving into Gen Y territory, which was confusing for us, because people would say things like, well, that's your truth, but this is my truth. That's nice for you, but this is, this is how I live, this is my truth for me. And so it became this relativism, individualism and relativism, where truth was this, it was like holding water. There was no particular truth, although there is a truth and it's water, it's just that you hold it differently than I do. That was post-modernism. After there was this thing called truth, now there is no such thing as direct truth, there is your truth and there is my truth. Now scholars, to run a, a long story and a collection of books short, scholars would argue that post-modernism ended on September the 11th. Scholars argue that post-modernism ended when... The world saw there is no such idea of relative truth, and that's your truth, my truth, because, because people, well, all of a sudden woke up and saw that there is such a thing as, is that religion true? Is this religion true? Is that fact true? Is this, there can't be all truths equal all truths. And ever since then, since 9-11, scholars have argued, people have argued, is postmodernism still in? Is it not? And probably you're thinking by now, who cares? It doesn't matter. I think it matters in this way. You've probably had the conversation, someone says to you, oh, you're a Christian, or you, you believe in Jesus. That's wonderful, because he was a prophet or a guru or some sort of a uh, sage. That's your truth, but this is my truth. You do you, I'll do me. You may have had that conversation. I've had it several times, even recently. And it can feel like, well, there's nowhere to go from here. Because is there such a thing as claiming to know the truth? Is there such a thing as truth? Ironically, our universities, the word university comes from the word veritas, which means truth, universal truth. Around the world, there is universal truth, and we can study it and go to college and universities and learn it. That's ironic, isn't it? Because our universities today would teach, there is no universal truth. And you can deconstruct society and families and everyone and do whatever you want. But here's where I think it really does matter. So you can, you can kind of say, well, I'm postmodern and that's your truth and this is my truth and that's fine. Except when it gets personal. See, postmodernism doesn't matter unless it really becomes personal and then it matters a lot. I can give you that in a simple example. Do you like being lied to? Does anyone, do you enjoy being lied about? So when people perhaps speak about you falsely or they speak lies about you to other people, do you like that? Do you enjoy finding that out? No. There is such a thing as truth. You want the truth to come out. 
Our neighbours, the hundred or so thousand people of Bendigo, don't believe in postmodernism when it becomes about them. When it becomes personal to me. And lies and truth matter, friends. How much more with Jesus? How much more with God? It matters. Because God in Christ, as we see from the start of John's Gospel, the Word becomes flesh and He becomes deeply personal. He comes to us personally, toward us, to relate to us, and He comes to us with truth to receive. Today, we're going to be looking deeply into the truth about Jesus and to firstly see you see in the outline there, that Jesus is the light of the world. The scene that we have here in John 8, you've got your Bible open, I do hope you have it open, it will actually help you see what's going on in John's Gospel, in the whole Bible, really. But in John 8, the scene we have it, I want you to notice this, we've been in two chapters now, so in our group guides in John 7, we were there in John 8, it can feel like we're sort of... We're bogged, it feels like, almost with this conversation between the Pharisees and Jesus. Because for two big chapters of John, they just don't get it. And they defer and deflect and and change the subject and accuse him of all sorts of things. What's the context of John 8? What's the context of John 7? It's in 7 verse 2. Have a look. This is happening in the Feast of Booths. So we see in John chapter 7 verse 2, we're in this Feast of Booths. What is the Feast of Booths? That's why we read Leviticus 23. In Leviticus 23, we have all the feasts that God gives Israel. Feasts of feasting and resting, eating and drinking and enjoying God's gracious saving work. Including, and that is all the feasts, includes the Day of Atonement. By the way, this is providential. We're in this passage today. The Feast of Booze, Day of Atonement coming, because what's coming for us is Easter. Here we have this celebration, this Feast of Booze. Jerusalem is full of people who are resting and feasting. And what are they doing as they rest and feast? They're remembering God saved us out of Egypt. He saved us out of slavery. Now the Feast of Booze particularly, what is that? The word booth, I hope you can kind of get a picture of this. Um, you could also translate it as Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Tents. You see, when God saves Israel out of Egypt, how do they live for 40 years? They live in tabernacles, in tents, in booths. And so the Feast of Booths, God says, after saving you out of Egypt, you are to remember that you were saved this way. And how you remember this? You go backyard camping. Literally. If you celebrate the Feast of Booths today in Israel, you actually make a tent and for a week, you and your family don't live in the house. You go backyard camping and you live in the tent and you remember that God saved us out of Egypt, out of slavery. And we remember that we lived in tents, in tabernacles, in booths, little tents. And that's how they remember it. I wonder if you've been backyard camping before. I have. We're trying, I grew up camping. I was in the army cadets, that was my thing, that was my sport. And so camping was, you know, my life. And then I got married and Amy says, you never take me camping. I'm like, well, let's go camping. And then we had kids and then we stopped camping. 
And it just became more difficult and challenging. We tried it and thought, well, let's not do that again for a while. We might try it again this Easter. I hear this talk about maybe reforming, having some sort of Friday night, sort of Saturday camp between Good Friday and Risen Sunday. We'll try it again, maybe. But in the meantime, we do some practicing, kind of like the Feast of Booze, we do some backyard camping. Because backyard camping is not the real deal camping. It's remembering what camping is like. It's remembering and celebrating. That's what it was like. It smelled with the, the smoke, the wood smoke, and the sounds of, of the birds And as you wake up in the morning. And it's the sights of just seeing the night sky. So we go backyard camping to remember real camping. What a celebration it can be. The thing with backyard camping, though, is that it's different in that everything's close. The toilets are close. Uh, food is close. Everything is close. The only thing far away is sleep if you have young children. But that's what they're doing. So John 8, the Feast of Booths. Camping evokes strong memories. There are strong memories happening for Israel here. And now here in John 7 and John 8, we saw in John 7, in fact, you get it in your Bibles, John 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Throughout John 7 and 8, Jesus picks up all the imagery of being saved out of slavery, all the imagery of the feast of booze, he picks up and he uses and says, It all points to me. Jesus is the one who saves us. Jesus is the one we celebrate. And in today's scene, as we see that Israel was led to their salvation uh, to the promised land, we actually understand that that's where we're going if we believe in Jesus. And he is the light of the world. Now, what does that mean? What's that got to do with the Feast of Booze? Well, here's another illustration to remember. When God saves his people out of Egypt... They leave in a hurry. They leave in such a hurry, they have to get away. They can't afford to stop at night at times. So what do they do? They've got to, they've got to go at night. They've got to travel at night and travel in the day. Here's a question for you. When you've been camping or li- you've been living in the bush for a few days, what's it like walking through the Australian bush? I'm not talking about European bush or North American bush. It's got straight pine trees and there's all this flat ground. I'm talking about rugged Australian, eucalypt, fallen branch, gum, scrubby bush Australia. What's it like walking through that at night without a moon? Difficult, someone said. It is difficult. It is falling over difficult. Now imagine trying to lead a million people. Very difficult. How does God lead his people at night? It's fire, fire, pillar of fire. He is the light of his people as he leads them to his salvation, to the promised land. He is the light. Jesus picks up again a memory of the Feast of Booths, a memory of their salvation, and he says to Israel, I am that light. I am the one who leads you. I am the one who gives you clarity on what life's about, on where you're going, on who God is. It's me, I am he. In fact, if you look through John 7 and 8, the phrase, I am he, I am, I am, I am, I am, I am, is repeated so many times. Is Jesus saying, it's me. God is here. 
God does this. Now notice this, friends. When Jesus refers to himself as the light of the world, when he says, I am the one who is the rivers of living water for you, he is referring to something way bigger than us walking in a desert. When he says he's the light of the world, he is saying he is the light of your life. He's talking about having clarity about where your life is going. Even if you walk through the wilderness of trials and sufferings and sadness, Jesus is saying, I am the one who lights it up. I am the one who gives clarity, even when it's hard, even when it is walking is difficult and it's walking in the dark. He is the light. Do you want to have such clarity? Who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want God himself to come and look you in the eye and say to you, I will light up your life by day and night? Who wouldn't want that? Well, sadly, there's a whole bunch of people here in John 8 that don't want that. And there's a whole bunch of people in our world that don't yet want that. Look at John 8 verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus has just said he's the light of your life. And what do they do? They want to dodge that, deflect, defer, and they want to go to the law and talk about testimonial witnesses. None of what you say is valid, Jesus, because it doesn't fit with the law. You need two or three testimonies. This is to the person who has said, almost ad nauseum, I and the Father are one. I'll send the Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit has been in Jesus' conversation the whole time. Does he need any more witnesses? By the way, there was John the Baptist. The witnesses to Christ alone are manifold. But more than that, it's God himself. And Jesus is now saying to them, you want to keep deferring? You want to keep not believing? This means something, friends. This means, secondly, if you don't believe in Jesus, you will die in your sins. You will die in your sins. You see, the life that we live in, in our world, we do our best to make it comfortable, don't we? We do our best to make life here comfortable. And in Australia, it's relatively comfortable. For the last generation or two or three, we've had since the end of World War II, yes, there was the Korean War, and yes, there was the Vietnam War, but we've had wars, yes, but they're all overseas. They haven't really affected us much. And we've had trials and suffering and diseases and, and epidemics, but they haven't really hit us as much. And we've made life comfortable for ourselves. Until then, it wasn't. And life hasn't been so comfortable. In fact, we've always lived in a difficult place. We've always lived in a world that's got hardship and suffering and sorrow. It just hasn't come to my door yet. But it will. And when it does, the biggest difficulty we face is, for all of us, perishing after a very short life, the breath of our life, and dying in our sins. Dying without hope. Dying without a shepherd who reaches out his hand as you step into eternity and say, I'm here for you. Dying in your sins. 
Jesus says that phrase three times. Have a look with me. Look at verse 21. John 8 verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And so the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come. And he said to them, you are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Three times in that short space of time, Jesus saying, unless you believe in him, you are dead in your sins. He could not be clearer. Yet what do they get caught up on? Verse 22. Three times he says you're going to die in your sins. What are, they, what are they talking about? Is he going to kill himself? Do not we do this? Jesus comes along with gospel clarity and says, this is what you need to believe in. This is how you need to repent and believe. And we go, yeah, but Jesus, I'm just not sure about this particular thing you said earlier. And, you know, I don't really... Like, we get caught up on the... The stumbling things, they're getting caught up on the stumbling things. They stumble because they do not want to believe. And Jesus says with painstaking clarity. I mean, I'm not sure if Jesus could be clearer in John 7 or 8 if he used finger puppets. Okay, guys, Pharisees, listen up. This is me, this is you. All right? Me, Jesus. I come, I'm God. I've been saying it since from the beginning. He says it, actually. We see this in verse... uh, I'm in trouble. I should have my glasses here. Verse 25, <laughs> he says it there. I am from God. And they're like, yeah, but we want to talk about that other thing you said. Okay, listen carefully. I am from God. You need to believe in me. He couldn't make it clear if he used finger puppets. But they're not being dull. They're being disobedient. Their hearts are not slow. They're hard. Jesus says in verse 25, ever since the beginning. And by the way, what did he say in the beginning? What does John's gospel say in the beginning? You can flick across and see this. Ever since the beginning. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And by the way, where does that phrase pick up from? Back at the beginning. Let's go back right to the beginning of the Bible. And what do we see right in the beginning of the Bible? Oh, it's, it's interesting because we see this Pharisees, we see this in the law that you want to quote. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning is God, and now he's here. And he said from the beginning who he is. But their hearts are hard. They ask a question in verse 26. Sorry, it's verse 25. They said to him, who are you? Who are you? That would be like at morning tea this morning, introducing yourself to someone, having a whole conversation, realising you've actually met that person, in fact, you know them, in fact, they're your brother, and then saying, who are you? Jesus has been making himself clear through John's Gospel. He's been making himself clear throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. But the question of who is Jesus that escapes them is the question that must not escape us. It is the most important question in the gospel accounts, all four of them, who is Jesus? Because answering that question frees you from slavery. If you see that he is the Christ and you believe, 
Now, Jesus brings up this slavery for them and they get all offended. We're not slaves. Oh, no, we're not slaves. Uh, Abraham's our father. We are not slaves. Which is ironic, really, because it's the Feast of Booze. And what does the Feast of Booze celebrate? The fact that they were slaves. Which is also ironic because they're also in Israel at the time. And at the time, um, who owns Israel? Who occupies Israel? Uh, it's the Romans. This is a people that say, we've never been slaves of anyone. That's what they say. They're in the Feast of Booze. They're celebrating that God rescued them from slavery. I've never had a problem with sin. Really? I love that moment in Leon's testimony where he, he said that. Because that's what they're saying. Of course, I've never sinned since. But we know that's not true. It's not true of me. Leon, as he said, often people have this attitude, don't they? And the Pharisees, they claim their freedom because Abraham's their father. Do they know who they're speaking to? Jesus says, you're enslaved. Practicing sin, staying in sin is a slavery. What is sin? Sin is the opposite of love. God commands us to love God and love others. And sin is the opposite of that because we don't love God. We'd rebel against him, we disobey him, we ignore him, and we don't love others. That's sin. It's a pretty simple explanation of a pretty horrid problem in our world. Everything you see in our world, sin is unloving. A nation invading a smaller nation and pulverizing their cities is an unloving, sinful thing to do. Just as much as a neighbor speaking falsely about another neighbor is an unloving thing to do. Sin. And they're just practicing it on a daily basis. Yes, we're all sinners, but here's the dark slavery of sin. And here's what often we don't understand, do we? See, for you and I, if we recognize sin in our life, we want to repent. Like we want to put sin to death. Romans 6, Romans 8. We want to do that. We want to put sin to death. We But for those who are against Jesus, the slavery and darkness of sin that caused them to stumble on him and stumble over him and not actually believe in him, that slavery is so dark that people are so self-deceived they would rather not the light come because what does the light do in people's lives? It exposes darkness. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide and say, I'm not really like this. There's nowhere to hide in our life and say, my heart... Yeah, it can't really show what I'm really like. People want to be in the darkness, but here's the thing about darkness. They can't see. They're enslaved. They're blind. And how do you get out of the darkness? Jesus says you've got to believe in him. In fact, particularly, he says, you look in verse 31, you need to abide in his word. Get in to Jesus' word. Get into him. Jesus is making a point here because you look at verse 31. He says to the Jews who believed in him. He says, look at this, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus has seen people in John's gospel do the old Aussie thing when it comes to Jesus. The old Aussie thing, that old chestnut is, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. I don't need to go to church. 
And, yeah, it's, he's interesting, isn't he? I believe in Jesus. Believing in Jesus, the fruit of that is more that you're interested. The fruit of believing in Jesus will be, it's changed your life inside out. It's turned things upside down. You relate differently to your neighbours now. You relate differently to, to your family, to your friends. You relate differently to God. Believing in Jesus is not just an intellectual assent of, yeah, he's an interesting guy. Maybe he was God. Believing in Jesus, Jesus says in verse 31, is to abide, is to go all in, is to be all in with Jesus because he has radically changed my heart inside out. It's like Jesus is offering the lifeboat. This world is one big Titanic. Like the Titanic, we said, look at this world. We built it. Humanity built it. We are amazing. And we are going to build this world. And when this world, well, it starts to go downhill a bit, well, we'll get in spaceships and we'll find another one and we'll build that one. And we are amazing. And that's the future of humanity because we're amazing. Just like they said of the Titanic, this ship will never sink. If you watch the movie, it's a long one. But I don't want to give away the ending if you don't know. It sinks. This world is the Titanic. It's one big Titanic. Because it's actually sinking. It's sinking in sin and death and its future is not bright without rescue. And along comes Jesus and he says, here's the lifeboat, I'm the lifeboat and you need to abide in my word. What does that mean? You need to get in the lifeboat. Like you can't just look from the sinking ship and say, you know that lifeboat, I love the colour scheme. Love what you've done with it. I love all the features. Wow, you got all sorts of things there. Flares and you know, rafts and food and all sorts of provisions. Wonderful. That's a good looking lifeboat. Glad you came. Bye. Now you've got to get in the lifeboat. To, 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 to be believed, to save, is to get in with Jesus. Jump in with Jesus. All in. Abide in him. Abide in his word. Believe him at his word. And see it change your life. And what is his word? It's the word of grace that sets you free. It's the word of grace. And the word of grace is the word of truth. You see, there are those of us who live our whole life on a lie. We claim to be good. It's all good. when it's not all good. Life is not all good, friends. Can we admit that? In fact, life is downright hard for many of us. And for some of us, it's hard a lot. And we're not all good. We've not got it together. We're not strong. We're not impressive. I'm not impressive. We're often anxious, angry. We haven't got life together. We live in the darkness if we want to believe that we're okay without Jesus. We live a lie. And Jesus is saying, friends, come out from the lie. Live in the truth. Live in the light. Be free. It's liberating. Do you know how liberating it is to be able to admit I'm often wrong? Do you know how liberating it is to say I'm actually not strong? Do you know how liberating it is to say my life is messy? I've got anxieties. I've got all sorts of things going on. Do you know how liberating it is to say I need Jesus? It'll free you from a world of performance measures. That this world is all they offer. Live by performance, meet the standards, make the values that I set. 
meet my law. But Jesus says, I came by love to free you, so now you can love freely. And how does he do this? It's in the middle of this passage. It's a remarkable thing Jesus says. He's speaking to people who have no belief. They don't want to be in the lifeboat. And he says this, pick it up in verse 27. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. When you've lifted the Son of Man, Jesus uses the phrase Son of Man. It's from Daniel 7. It's, it's about this human figure that meets the Ancient of Days and is given all power and authority. And he often speaks about himself that way. He's the Son of Man. And in John's Gospel, the Son of God. The Son of Man, Son of God, truly God, truly human. And he says, when you lifted me up, then you'll know. When do they lift him up? Like if you keep reading John's Gospel, we're going to be reading to the middle at Easter, and at Easter we'll be in John 10 and John 11. John 10 on Good Friday and John 11 on Risen Sunday. Why? Because have you heard of cinematic Easter eggs? A cinematic Easter egg is like in um, the Marvel series, which I'm not all over, but I get there's this thing called Easter eggs, right? What they do is the writers put things in the series that you go, oh, I noticed that, and that, that, that's connected to this other thing later. Well, John 10 and John 11 have cinematic Easter eggs in them. Because in John 10, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. What is that an Easter egg of? It's the cross. We'll be looking at John 10 on Good Friday. In John 11, the cinematic Easter egg is, he raises someone who's dead several days, his friend Lazarus from the death. I wonder what that's a cinematic Easter egg of. It's on Risen Sunday. You'll never guess. But um, you see this about Jesus, right? Jesus comes and he says to them, when you... Not someone others, but you guys. When you, I'm not pointing to you in particular, I'm pointing to the, like, pretend you're the, the Pharisees over here. When you, when you raise the Son of Man, when you raise me up, when you lift me up, then you will know. When do they do that? On the cross. These people who don't yet believe, some of them will fully see and they will believe. Isn't that wonderful? Some of them who had hard hearts that day will actually put him on a cross and then turn and say, what must we do to be saved? Acts chapter 2. When you see Jesus lifted on the cross, you see the truth of Christ. He is the Son of Man lifted up. He is the God who so loved the world that you will not die in your sins if you believe in him. When John writes his gospel, we go to the end of John's gospel. I want you to flick across to uh, John 19. John 19, verse 35. John writes this of himself as he looks at the cross. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true and has known that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. And then let's go to the purpose statement of John's gospel. Flick the next page with me to John chapter 20. Verse 30 to 31. This is why the banner of our sermon series is this. This is why it's called this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. In other words, there's heaps to write about. I only had 21 chapters, friends. But 
These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is all for you. It's for them on that day, and some of them do end up believing. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, head teacher, ends up being, I think, as we see in John's Gospel, a believer. In Acts 2, a whole bunch of them, 3,000 of them. Some of them, Peter says in his sermon, it's the most sharpest sermon application ever in the New Testament, you did this, and they go, how can we be saved? They believe. They believe. It's for you to believe. It's for you to believe that Jesus went into slavery on the cross. He was captured on that cross to set you free. And he did that willingly. Believe in him and be free. Now what difference does that make for us today? In one sense, it's a simple gospel message, isn't it? I don't have for you today you know, a doctrine of church membership or a doctrine of how we understand a particular aspect of systematic theology. John 7 is a big chapter, part of a dialogue of two chapters, but the big point is this. Why don't we believe? Could you believe? As in, not just say that Jesus is interesting, but would you put your whole life in the lifeboat of Jesus? Would you abide in his word? What difference does that make? Well, I've got three areas, briefly. Firstly, Jesus and you. Secondly, our church. And thirdly, our city, our region, Bendigo and beyond. Firstly, Jesus and you. There are lots of things you could believe in. Lots of things you can stake your life upon. But remember this, we've said it before. If you want to believe in the security of being wealthy... If you want to believe in the safety of certain relationships, if you want to believe in the status or reputation that you're impressive or nice or whatever it is, if you want to stake your life on any of those things, hear this clearly, friends, none of those things died for your sin. Your money did not die for your sin. And it doesn't rise for your hope. We tend to believe it does. Inflation figures, the stock market, my bank account will rise and I will get hope. And it fails us. Your friends and family, as, as wonderful as they are, cannot save you from being dead in your sins. There is only one who you need to throw your life in, cast all your life onto and abide in him, and that is Christ. He will never fail you. He will never shame you. And he comes for failures like you to be shamed for you. You could give your life to work. You could give your life to lots of things. You could give your life to recreation and pure pleasure, and it will fail you. Jesus will never fail you. Never. Secondly, what does it mean for our church? In recent weeks, friends, I'm not going to say the details of, you can Google this, you can go on the news, but in recent weeks, there have been high-profile church leaders or churches that have fallen dramatically. Australia, 
is not without scars now. High-profile people who have lived often in secret lives and then it gets exposed later. The hypocrisy is, is hard to take, but here's what's harder for us as a church, is we get brushed with that brush. So people say, and I've seen this recently, I saw it on social media, people don't like Christianity because they don't like the church. Now that may well be the case, because people are hurt. And we should make sure that church leadership is about being a servant and a shepherd. It is not about being on a platform and elevated with a special title, global senior pastor of the world or whatever you want to be. People are hurt by the church. Let's look to Jesus and love one another and as a church be like him and not like the world. But here's the next thing I want us to notice. We get discouraged then because we feel like, I can't share the gospel with my friends because they see all the stuff in the news about the church and they think, what's the? why would they want Jesus? Can I just encourage you with this? When people say this, and I've even seen Christians say this, people don't like Christianity because of the church or the institutional church. Have a look at John 8. Have a look at John 7. Have a look at all of John's gospel, really. Read it to the end. Can I ask a question? Is it entirely possible that people don't like Christianity because they don't like Christ? Like, is that possible? Friends, that's encouraging. If they didn't like him then, they won't like him now. Jesus says, they'll hate you because they hate me. Friends, that's, you might think, well, this is getting weird. Why is that encouraging? It's encouraging because before you have to make a mess of it, and we all do, don't worry. The problem of people coming to faith in Jesus is not just you. It may be a hindrance at times. It's actually, it's Jesus. And the only way that's going to change is Jesus changes that for them by his spirit. That's encouraging, I think. They wanted to pick up stones to stone Jesus. They weren't picking up stones to stone the dumb disciples because the dumb disciples did dumb disciple stuff. They were stoning Jesus because they didn't want Jesus to be God and King. And lastly, that's good news for Bendigo, actually, and beyond. How? Why? Because our family and friends live here. And we don't want them to die in their sins. We pray for them that they would come and be set free. And Jesus is the light of the world. He's the liberating truth. So now would be a good time to pray for them. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we have lived in darkness and now we see that Christ is the light. Help us to believe by abiding in his words, by being in all out with him, believing in his words, trusting in the gospel word of your son. Thank you we don't die in our sins. If one of us or some of us or all of us died tonight... Thank you that we have the light who leads the way through the valley into the promised land of heaven to come. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for life in his name. And so we pray with grateful hearts in his name. Amen.